You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, with me, your host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. To all of my returning listeners, welcome back. And to all of the new people here, um, consider this a warning. So the language on here can get a little bit colourful. And if you have an issue with expletives, you might want to exit stage left. Okay, cool. Now that we've got that sorted. Hey everybody, how is everybody doing? Have you voted for me? And the Listener's Choice and the Podcast Awards yet? Well, the Irish Podcast Awards. And you're just going to go on, fill in the form. I say fill in the form. You type in my name, who did what now? You click on my wee face. You put in your email address. And then you click the link in your email. It's basically to make sure people don't like multi-vote and things like that. And so somebody doesn't like spam vote 500 times. And it would be absolutely amazing if you did that because, you know, um, I would very much appreciate that. It'd be good, you know. Um, But the shortlist goes out on the 14th of September. So that's going to be fun to see if I made it. You know, it's going to be an interesting one. Especially considering people seem to forget that I'm from Ireland. Like, I'm from Donegal. I have lived in Donegal the majority of my life. I grew up here. I speak Irish, poorly, but I speak it. You know, my kids are Irish. You know, it's just like people hear the accent and they just assume that I'm, you know, from elsewhere. Doesn't matter how many times I say it. Doesn't matter how many, you know, fucking Irish monuments I'm in front of or Irish history I discuss. Like, people don't, don't pick it up. I, I had somebody, uh, <laughs> I had somebody comment on one of my, like, Instagram videos and they were like, oh, that's, that's why you're always, you know, in Ireland. I never put two and two together. I, I don't know what kind of job you think I have that I'm constantly jumping countries, <laughs> like... Um, yeah, but it's funny. It's funny. And as some of you can probably tell, my voice still isn't fully back yet. It does not help that when I read bedtime stories to my children, I have to do the voices. It's a thing. I have to do the voices. So we're currently reading Codename Bananas. I did not choose it because it's set in World War II. My kids chose it. Um, I... It did me a while to get into David Williams' books because for a long time my kids struggled even to read Roald Dahl because so many of the characters were mean. Like, it took me a year to convince my kids to let me read them Matilda because they were so worried because, like, all this horrible stuff was happening to this child. And my son was just like, why are they so mean? Why are they doing this to her? I don't want to hear this. This is too sad. And I was like, okay, you're empathizing with Matilda already. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. But eventually we got through it and, you know, the best books are written through trauma. 
right? Yeah. But yeah, so I have to do the voices. And so, like, Uncle said, he talks like this because apparently I'm like a really bad Ray Winston. I don't know why. I don't know why I do it. Like, I choose voices that are generally a strain to do. Like, why would I do that to myself? Why? And yet I do. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, quit your jibber jabber. In fact, me. In fact, you I will. But first, we've got to get our source on. Our sources are J.M. Barry and the Lost Boys by Andrew Birkin. J.M. Barry, the Demoriers and the Dark Side of Neverland by Piers Durgeon. The Real Peter Pan by Parker James. The Barry Inspiration by Patrick Chalmers. Hide and Seek with Angels, A Life of J.M. Barry by Lisa Cheney. And of course, our old favourite, Biography.com. Are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then let's begin. I'm about to ruin some childhoods with this one. I mean, if you ever read Peter Pan like any of the original stories, then this, this should not be too surprising for you because the over, you know, simplified saccharine sort of Disney version, which still involves kidnapping and attempted murder, I'm just, I'm just saying, might be worth taking a critical eye on that. But yes, the writer of Peter Pan and creator of the name Wendy, supposedly, I've, I've got a feeling about that. But yeah, James Matthew Barry. He was born on the 9th of May, 1860, in Kerrymuir and Angus in Scotland, to David Barry and Margaret Ogilvy. So Barry started off with relatively humble beginnings. I mean, he's from Angus, like, first of all. And secondly, his dad's a weaver and his mum, well, she's a housewife. Now, his dad is fairly successful, well enough that all of the Barry children are educated. Now, James Matthew Barry, J.M. Barry, he is, I think, the ninth out of ten children, although two had passed away before he was born, so there's only... Uh, making him the seventh living child. It's just math! Yeah, so... He's nine, like, chronologically, but he's the seventh living child. Yes. Okay. Good. We got that sorted. So all of the living Barry children, they are, well, they're, they're schooled, they're educated. And so they learn the three R's, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic. You know, it was basically a base level of education to have any sort of formal or professional career. Like you had to be able to read and write at this point because... If you wanted to sign a contract or if you wanted to do your banking or, you know, lots of things involve having to know numbers and words, you know. I feel like that's a very, very simple way to put it, but not everybody had that option. But you find sort of from the mid-1800s onwards, there was a greater push into education and a lot of it was run by like churches and charitable foundations but it started to get a little bit secular sort of after that to slowly but surely bring in sort of national education. Like it was on its way, it wasn't there yet, but it was on its way. Have you ever asked yourself what makes a great writer? Um, well, I have the answer for you. Trauma! Like every great writer of a children's book, right, has suffered just horrific trauma. They have seen someone die, usually. Well, not just children's authors, but, like, authors in general. Listen, okay, so you've got, like, J.M. Barry and Roald Dahl and J.R.R. Tolkien and Mary Shelley. Like, lots of people who have witnessed, you know, horrific death and suffered trauma. Makes good writers. I'm not saying that you should force yourself to undergo some form of, you know, calamitous and soul-crushing event, you know, just that you'll be better with a pen and paper. Um, I am saying, though, the evidence would suggest that it helps. No, but seriously, don't, don't do that. Don't go seeking the bad vibes. Just stay, just stay away. And in, in the fun lane, where there's 
flowers and candy floss and, I don't know, mediocre tapioca. I, I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, back to J.M. Barry. So when he is six or seven years old, he's out ice skating with his older brother, uh, who's, I think, um, 13? Yeah, he's 13, because it's the day before his 14th birthday. And David, he's ice skating and somehow collides with another skater and David ends up falling on the ice and cracking his skull and dying. So this absolutely devastates his mother, Margaret, because David was her favourite and his death created such a massive grief in her that she just could not connect to the rest of her children, especially James Matthew. Because James Matthew Barry, she also laid the blame of the event on him because he was with him. I mean, he's six years old. That is certainly some depression-level grief because it's not rational to blame a six-year-old for the accidental death of a 13-year-old. Like, it's not. It's not a logical, rational, like, way to be. But losing a child is not a rational event. Like, it's not something that should happen because we live life in a very chronological fashion. Like, you you know, you're, you're expected to have family, then you die. And then your children live on. And then they have children and then they die. Like, it's supposed to be like, uh, you know, this circle of life or whatever. But, and it said there is no greater pain than burying a child. Am I surprised in this? Absolutely fucking not. Because any form of mental illness gets you sent to the sanatorium. So, you know, there's not really a lot of options for the concept of mental health, even though we know that they were discussing it from fucking Elizabethan times. Merchant of Venice, that's all I'm saying. Point being, skip to this. She is suffering, she doesn't know how to deal with it, and nobody knows how to help her with it, because, you know, it's the fucking 1800s. And Barry, he doesn't know how to deal with this. And so he tries to gain that love and attention and affection from his mother. And because he's six years old and cannot fucking understand what's going on around him and he's so desperate for his mother's love, he starts wearing his brother's clothes and he starts acting like him and he's trying to, I don't know, not like replace him, but like trying to emulate him in order for his mum to show him that love. But Barry realises that he's not his brother and his mother won't feel the same way about him. And that's something he then has to deal with from such a young age. That's not to say him and his mum didn't like eventually connect. They did. And it would be over stories. So she would read him the novels that she had loved as a child. And that was how they managed to have something. But this moment, this trauma and this lack of affection he received, it really plants a seed in him and it affects him for the rest of his life. Now when he's eight, he basically ends up in the care of two of his older siblings. So Alexander and Marianne, because they teach at the Glasgow Academy. So when he's eight, he goes there and he studies there for like two years and then when he's 10, he goes back home, where he studies at Forfar Academy. And he's there for another four years before he heads to Dumfries. But when he's in Dumfries, he's again looked after by his older siblings, Alexander and Marianne. And this is where he really starts getting into novellas and novels and, like... The Penny Dreadfuls, he is into this. I mean, he's a teenager and it's like the cool thing of the time. Like, I don't know, like comics in the 50s and Sega Mega Drives in the 90s. Now, when he's in Dumfries, him and some schoolmates, 
they end up starting this sort of drama club. And it, it's kind of like the beginnings of what's going to be sort of the basis of Neverland and Peter Pan and Hook and all that. It kind of all springs from here. But life isn't all fun, games and amateur dramatics. Oh no, no. Of course Barry was making sure he was educated, but in his spare time when he wasn't doing any of that, he was, you know, stalking a historian. That's right, Thomas Carlyle. So he was this, like, absolutely massive deal at the time. He was an essayist, an historian, and Barry, he kind of has this whole hero worship thing. And so he's literally following this dude around the streets of Dumfries. Like, like people notice this is happening. I mean, this famous fella is being followed by this wee dinky fella. Like, yeah, so J.M. Barry, he only ends up being like 5'3", five, 5'4". Five, he's, he's not a tall man, even for the era. He's not, he hasn't even hit average, right? So... He is, he's Toti. He's teeny Toti, right? He's a wee Toti James Barry. And he is following this dude around. Like, desperate to kind of get his hands on him. Like, he has this plan where he wants to touch him just so he can tell people that he has touched him. Like, I want to say not in a creepy way, but I don't know in any scenario in which that is not really bloody creepy. You know? So Barry decides that he absolutely 100% wants to be an author. But, you know, uh, not everybody makes it. And his family are like, you need to um get a day job before you can, you know, not quit your day job. And so his family tried to get him to join the ministry. Like, that is what they're trying to do. They're like, please, please get a profession. Join the ministry. You know, the church is always looking to pay people for stuff. And not just hush money. So Barry does end up attending university, Edinburgh Uni actually, but he's studying literature, which is which is the compromise they've worked out. And so Barry graduates with a Master of Arts in 1882, after which his sister finds him a job because she's reading the Scotsman newspaper and she sees that the Nottingham Journal is looking for a staff writer. And so she gets him to apply and he does. And he gets it. And so he's working there for about a year, year and a half, there or thereabouts. But when he's back working in Currymuir, he sends these stories to the St. James Gazette, which is a London newspaper. And it's all about, um, like, places about where his mum grew up, the stories that she had told him. And they become the basis of, like, a bunch of his, like, Scottishy books later on. Um, like, the Thrums and whatnot. So these are really popular and, you know, it, it's, it's very fashionable. It's very fashionable in the mid-1800s to be Scottish, right? It's a big thing. Like, Tartan has come back. It's Queen Victoria likes it. You know what I mean? It's, it's around. And so that Scottish thing is very popular. And so this leads to a series of stories and things are going well. Okay, so this is actually pretty funny. So, like, he starts making friends and making connections. Like, he becomes pals with George Bernard Shaw, who ends up being his neighbour, by the way. Um, He's got H.G. Wells. He has a just a consistent correspondence with Robert Louis Stevenson. Yeah. Uh-huh. Of course. Of course he does. Why? Why wouldn't he? And he ends up sort of rubbing elbows with all of these just literary giants or what are going to be known as literary giants right and so he ends up setting up a cricket club like an amateur cricket club um for people with you know similar ability to him so not great we're not we're not gonna be taking home the ashes anytime soon but yeah like he makes he makes this team this amateur cricket team called the Allah Akbaris, right? Now, I know what you're thinking. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he thought Allah Akbar meant heaven help us, right? When it, I think it means I think it means God is great. I'm I'm not fluent in Arabic. Uh, <laughs> just just a heads up, it's one of the few languages that I 
don't think I could even hazard a guess into what the words are. Like, it, it has a different stem than what I'm used to. But yeah, so he has a cricket team called the Ala Akbaris, which feels vaguely racist. I just feel like... I, it just feels weird, especially coming out my tongue. It feels weird. Yeah. So yeah, all of these authors are on the team at one point or another. So we have like Rudyard Kipling. Okay, no, it's definitely racist. <laughs> um, Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, A.A. Milne. Yes, the guy who wrote Winnie the Pooh. Um, Walter Raleigh. Uh, um... Alfred Tennyson, and then, and, and, oh, P.G. Woodhouse, so, like, Jeeves, the guy who invented Jeeves, like, H.G. Wells, also on this team, like, how, what, imagine, imagine you're about to play cricket, I mean, you're probably from a certain social class if you're going to play cricket, but you're about to play cricket, and, I don't know, you've got the bat, the cricket bat, it's a bat, right, it's a bat. And you're standing in front of your wicket and H.G. Wells. <laughs> or or even better, like, the writer of Winnie the Pooh is about to throw the cricket ball at you. like, Which, for years, I shit you not, I was convinced was a shiny red apple. And I was so confused. Because I couldn't understand why it didn't, like, smush when it hit the cricket bat. Like, I didn't, I didn't get it. <laughs> Ah, yes, yes. Let's just throw fruit at each other. <laughs> the ultimate um, decadence. Fruit with sports. I mean, what did I think squash was? I mean, <laughs> clearly not the sportiest of people. But yeah, because he starts making these connections, he starts dipping his tool back into theatre. So he's writing plays and stuff. Some of them are doing well. Some of them are absolutely tanking, because of course they are. And, I mean, it's it's the theatre. Like, not everything is going to be a winner. Like, not everything is Hamilton. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> of all the things I truly went with Hamilton. That being said, I'm going to say this now. I think you could make a very good musical from the Kaiser Chiefs songs. I'm just saying, Ricky Wilson, hit me up. I have ideas for a jukebox musical. I'm just saying, it could work. I've got this. But yeah, so he starts, you know, dipping his toe into theatre and he's, he's writing plays and whatnot. And it's here that he's in, introduced to an actress called Mary Ansel. So he's trying to get a decent actress for this play, Walker, London. And so he asks Jerome K. Jerome, you know, if he knows a pretty actress who could play the part. And enter stage right, one Mary Ansel. So the two of them become acquainted. They become relatively friendly. And he ends up being incredibly ill. Um, sort of between 1893 and 1894. And it's Mary who actually helps look after him. And so after he's back, you know, at full speed again, they end up getting married in Kerry Muir on the 9th of July, 1894. And basically, you know, he's well again. They get married and she decides, I don't really need to be acting anymore. I'm a wife. And so no harm to her because it's, you know, the past and that's how things were. But yeah, so she's, she's there. And so it's this teeny tiny ceremony, right? It's in, I think, his parents' house. And it's this small intimate wedding. And so they're married. But the marriage is not consummated. Like, it's, this is not for dispute. Here is a direct quote from his wife. Love in its fullest sense could never be felt by him or 
experienced. And this is relating to two things, actually. One, the fact that he's impotent um, and or possibly asexual. We're not, we're not sure about that specifically, but he's definitely impotent. But the other part it relates to is the fact that he doesn't appear to have any romantic love, hence the possible asexual connection. However, now what he lacks in sort of empathy, he makes up for in abundance with, you know, cunning and manipulation. I am fairly certain that J.M. Barry got married not because he was in love, but because it would look good. Like, if he was a married man, if he had a wife, he would seem typical. You know, he would project the idea of who he wanted people to see. He was a respectable family man. Sure, he was married. He had a beautiful wife. The very same year he's married, this book comes out and it really captures Barry's attention. It's called Trilby by George du Maurier. Yes, yes, the grandfather of Daphne du Maurier, writer of Rebecca. But yeah, Barry is basically fangirling over du Maurier. And after Trilby becomes this big success and things are going great, uh, du Maurier only really gets two years to enjoy this because in 1896, he dies. Two years of enjoying success and then death. In an attempt to get closer to du Maurier before he passed away, obviously, J.M. Barry, his wife Mary and their St. Bernard dog, Porthos, had moved to Kensington in London, sort of very close to Kensington Gardens where he would often walk the dog. Now, he had supposedly bought this dog for his wife, but he's, you know, had a habit of spending more time with it than she did, or more time with it than he did with her, you know? And then one day, as he was walking Porthos, who does he come across but Llewellyn Davies' children? What a crazy random happenstance that these children, the grandchildren of the George de Maurier, happened to be in such close proximity. How convenient. So he comes across George and, well, John, but they called him Jack for whatever reason, so. There are five children, um, all in all. At this point, there's three. George, John, and Peter. So Peter is a baby. Yeah, he's a baby. George is four, Jack is three, and yeah, Peter is a baby. So he comes across them and their nanny, and he starts performing with the St. Bernard. So they're doing this like play fight, and he just amazes them. Wow! And then he conveniently keeps meeting them in the park. And then, and then, and then, how fucking serendipitous is it that he just happens upon their mother and father at a dinner party. What are the chances? So he meets Sylvia and Arthur and he kind of doesn't really connect with Arthur. He finds Sylvia sort of sneaking away some sweets, saying they're for her boys. And he's like, yes, I have an in. So Llewellyn Davies, the Llewellyn Davies family, they're not the most financially secure of people, right? He's a struggling lawyer and well, she's a housewife. So they're trying to make ends meet and J.M. Barry is a relatively well-known and financially secure man. So he is at this dinner party, right? Which he absolutely did not engineer in any way whatsoever. Cough. And he proclaims that Sylvia is the most beautiful creature he has ever met. That's not a weird thing to say to somebody's wife in Victorian London. But yeah, Barry is really starting to get more success and he is doing well financially. 
So in 1900, he and Mary and Borthos the dog, they move to 100 Bayswater Road. And it is directly overlooking Kensington Gardens. It is fancy. So the same year, Mary finds this cottage, Blacklight Cottage, up in Surrey. And it's just like a nice summer home. It's where Barry can entertain his cricketing friends. And of course, the Llewellyn Davies family. Who, again, not the most financially secure. So what he does is Barry spends a lot more time with Sylvia. He's telling the children stories. I think at this point, Michael is born. And then Nicholas ends up being born in 1903. Okay, so, yes. So there's going to be five sons in total. George, John, Peter, Michael and Nicholas. John is also Jack. I don't know why. It just is. Okay, let's just accept the past for this weird name swapping situation. It's not as if they're shortening it. It's not as if it's, you know, a nickname of funniness. Unless Jack means something else. I don't know, maybe it does. Oh, maybe it does. Anyway. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber. To improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. So, they have this little summer home where they're doing all this stuff. And then they've got the house, you know, in London. And he is treating the Llewellyns. Like, he's sharing them with gifts and taking them on holidays. Like, he is spending a lot of time. He has weaseled his way into this family and they're basically like, this is Uncle Jim. This is Jimmy. Yeah. Yeah, Jim, Jiminy, Jim, Jiminy, Jim, Jim. That's right. You you keep being an absolute weirdo. So when it came to the Llewellyn Davies boys, right, he would tell them stories about baby Peter. So it started off with George and John Jack and baby Peter. So he would tell stories of how Peter was a baby who could fly and this becomes the inspiration for a little white bird. And it's also why in Peter Pan, Nana, the dog, is a Saint Bernard, just like Porthos. (gasps) Yeah, so basically it all starts off like this and this inspires him to have two back-to-back successes in 1901 and 1902. So Quality Street. This is after many, many years of failing in the theatre. So uh, I think at one point he writes a play that is so bad and is just so upsetting that he has to convince Conan Doyle to revise it and rewrite it for him because it's just so shit. (laughs) Ah, let's get the man who believes in fairies to rewrite it. Cool. So um, he is writing these plays, uh, what was it, the, yeah, Quality Street, and then Admiral Crichton, and they are fucking amazing, there's social commentary, there's, you know, humour, there's pain, it's brilliant, it's amazing, and in 1902, he writes the book, Little White Bird. This is the origin of Peter Pan, yes, it does involve a flying baby, it's a lot of, it's weird, it's weird, but it's, you can tell the start of something is there. 
And this brings on to Peter Pan, The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up, which is a stage play. And this brings in the character of Wendy. Now, Wendy exists because of Margaret Henley. So she's this wee girl who has a speech impediment. She can't pronounce her R's right, like Jonathan Ross. And so she's trying to say my friendy, but ends up saying my fwendy. And apparently this is the origin of the name Wendy. However, I've had many elderly people argue with me many times, enough for me to consider that this is a possibility. That Wendy is also short for Gwendolyn. Like, somebody said that at one point in history. And I can't disprove it. So I'm going to have to go with it's a possibility, you know? So yeah, this this play of Peter Pan, the boy who didn't grow up, it's, it's sort of put out there as a play for kids, right? But there's so many dark themes and dark metaphors in this that uh, it's clearly not for children. But yes, this play is such a massive, massive hit that it just basically sets up by for life. Like he just ends up having success after success, hit after hit. But things are not all peachy in the Barry household. So he is constantly fighting for censorship, right? Because he's against censorship in theatres, which has caused so many issues over the years. And he ends up hiring the secretary, Gilbert Cannon, in order to fight, like, Chamberlain and all of the censorship, right? And we're going to get back to him in a minute. Back to the Llewellyn Davies. So Arthur is really unhappy about this special relationship that is cultivated between his wife Sylvia and J.M. Barry. He also isn't too keen on how much time he's spending with his kids. Like, he's spending a lot of time with the children. And, yeah. And his kids' names are ending up in J.M. Barry's books and plays. And he's, he's not too happy about that. But luckily for him, in 1907, he dies from face cancer. Yeah, no, you heard me right. Face cancer. Because of course he does. Of course he does. And so Sylvia is a widow and mother of five children. Luckily she has, you know, the nurse and the demoriers and decent income, you know, from her husband's, late husband's estate and J.M. Barry there to help and support her when she needs it. So sometime around 1908, mid-1908, an affair happens between Barry's wife Mary and his secretary, Gilbert Cannon. So Gilbert, by the way, is 20 years younger than Mary. So she's, she's cougaring it at this point. So he is younger and he's showing an interest in her that she's simply not getting anywhere else. So, as far as we know, as far as we know, Mary's a virgin up until this point, right? Because she could have been doing stuff with other people. Hims to say, J.M. Barry wouldn't know. He never touched her. So, she is having this affair with this man who is 20 years younger than her. You go, Mary. You, you know, you get your oil checked. I don't know. I was going to say get your oil greased, but that does not seem right. You go get your oil greased. What the fuck is that? I don't know. So I'm not condoning affairs, by the way, but I think if you're both emotionally and physically neglected throughout 15 years of marriage, might be time to look at other options. I'm just saying. But yeah, she wasn't greatly treated during the marriage and he showed her little affection and little, you know, attention. So sidebar, this is actually pretty juicy sort of Victorian Edwardian gossip because originally, right, Gilbert was trying to woo Kathleen Bruce, who was also being courted by Robert Falcon Scott, the explorer, right? So when she agrees to marry Scott, he's like, okay, 
fine, cool, I'll just get with Mary then. So they start having this torrid affair, Mary and Gilbert, yeah? And when GM Barry finds out about it, he is absolutely pissed. He demands that she calls off the affair and she's like, um, no. He then offers a separation as to not have, like, divorce in the papers. And she's also like, um, no. J.M. Barry is trying to avoid scandal and divorce. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen because you're a famous man in the early 20th century. So I think it's October 1909 they eventually get divorced. And it is big news. However, because he has so many you know, influential friends and people in high places, they write to, like, all of the newspapers. And again, this is a time when newspapers are constantly being, like, printed. And, like, three newspapers end up printing the story, but the majority of them don't, out of respect. And, like, is it George Bernard Shaw? He ends up like, making this character based on Gilbert in one of his plays, just as a sort of fuck you. And also, throughout this, through this whole scandal of divorce, H.G. Wells is writing to to Barry and trying to support him through this time. But yeah, he ends up suing for divorce on the basis of infidelity, which is funny, because if he is the one who'd been cheating, or had been, like, seen to be cheating very different case. She wouldn't be able to divorce him. Like, it wouldn't be an option for her. I'm just saying. So Mary, she actually ends up marrying Gilbert Cannon. Now, it's not the best of relationships because, you know, he's 20 years younger and he ends up having, like, affairs and stuff. But, like, throughout this, J.M. Barry, he keeps um, supporting Mary. Like, we could say this is altruistic. We could say this is out the goodness of his heart. But he gives her a yearly allowance. What she gives her on their wedding anniversary at a private dinner. Like, imagine... Just imagine that. I will provide you with money. But only if you come and see me privately... And you have to physically accept the cash from my hands. Just take a moment for that to marinate. Okay? Okay? Good. So it's about this time as well that Sylvia Llewellyn Davies becomes incredibly ill. And at this point, Uncle Jim, Jim Jiminy Jim Jiminy Jim Jim, he is paying for the boys' education. He's buying their gifts. He is covering their living expenses. He's doing all this financial support, which is weird to someone that he's not technically involved with in any way. And so he's focusing his attention on the boys. Now, as the boys grow, especially when they get to the age of 10, he's really into the age of 10. I don't know why. Um, It's kind of like, I want to say Elvis and his weird thing for like 14-year-old girls. But like not in a sexual way. But J.M. Barry, he becomes fixated on each child. And then like hitting 10, 10 is the favourite thing for him. But like they age out and he becomes less interested and them as they get older because like he is obsessed with their like boyishness and their boisterousness and you know that stereotypical like young boy energy so first he's like super into George and then Michael and then Peter and so on and so forth right and in 1910 when Sylvia passes away from lung cancer at the age of 44, which incidentally was the same age that Arthur was when he passed away, Michael is 10 years old. Like, J.M. Barry wrote letters to Michael telling him that he was his favourite. Again, not weird. Not weird at all. But knowing that she was not long with this world, Sylvia 
had left a will and testament, stating that the boys would go into the care of Jenny. But James Matthew Barry said, fuck this for a game of soldiers. He was not going to let a legal document get in the way of what he wanted, which was the grandchildren of George de Maurier, his lost boys. So he gets his grubby little fingers on the will and then he forges a copy where the name Jenny is changed to Jimmy. But why did Barry have a copy of the will in the first place? Well, he went round telling everybody that he and Sylvia were engaged before she died. Now, there was no engagement notice. There was nothing out there. Nothing to imply that there was any formal agreement or any engagement plan for either of them. Like, there's no, there's no evidence to this. Just him saying it after she died. But now, let's talk about this will for a second. Okay, so, Sylvia's last will in Testament says that um, J.M. Barry, along with her brother, her mother, and then her brother-in-law, so Arthur's brother, all four of them would become guardians and trustees for the children. Because, you know, it's all cool. And basically to say that all of them had to be treated with respect and to be honest with them and, you know, so on and so forth. It also states that Mary Hodgson, who was the nurse for all five boys, to continue taking care of them and that Hodgson's sister Jenny was supposed to come and help her. So when J.M. Barry, he's copying this for the family so that they can see a copy of Sylvia's last will and testament. And this is where he changes Jenny, or Jenny, to Jimmy. Just to kind of reinforce that, right? And so everyone is presented with this will, which seems pretty legit. You know, everyone still has access. No one seems like they're taking control. It all seems very fair. And so no one contests it because it does seem like a reasonable and logical thing. But Hodgson's, the nurse, and J.M. Barry, they do not get on. They absolutely do not. And she doesn't like the way he acts around the boys. Like, the boys' friends think that Barry is absolutely creepy. Like, when he's walking with them, he makes them hold his hands. And which many other children thought was a bit weird. So J.M. Barry basically has control over the five Llewellyn Davies boys. And this does not go well for the boys. So they struggle with him in the way that he treats them. And at this point in his life, Barry is doing really, really well financially. He's rolling in dough. And his plays are doing so well that in 1913, he ends up knighted, becoming a member of the Order of Merit. But then in 1914, the Great War, World War I, breaks out. And it becomes quite clear quite quickly that things are not all peachy. And desperate to break away from Barry's influence or anything related to him, both George and Peter Llewellyn Davies sign up for war. Like, this isn't conscription. This hasn't even been considered yet. They just need to go. Because fighting a war is preferable to having to live under Barry's thumb. And on the 15th of March, 1915... George Llewellyn Davies, at the age of 21, was shot by a German sniper in Flanders. Oh my goodness, I almost forgot. Robert Falcon Scott, yes, Scott's expedition to the South Pole, J.M. Barry was actually the godfather to Scott's son. And when he was writing letters in the South Pole, he wrote one to J.M. Barry asking for him to take care of his wife, and son. 
And James Matthew Barry, he would keep this in his pocket, like the majority of the time, ready to show anybody, like at any opportunity. Like, look, look what my dead friend sent me. Like he was really proud of it, like it was a medal. In 1917, just before the war is over, Barry ends up hiring Cynthia Asquith, the niece of Herbert Asquith, the Prime Minister. Or, well, the previous Prime Minister. He was Prime Minister until 1916. And he hired Cynthia in 1917. Because when it comes to getting a job, all roads lead to nepotism. In 1919, Barry is elected Rector of the University of St Andrews for three years. And then in 1921, tragedy strikes again. Michael, you know, his favourite out of the Llewellyn Davies siblings, he dies in a tragic and mysterious accident. So there's this pool, which is known for being really fucking dangerous, and Michael, as it turns out, afraid of water. Like, doesn't like being in the water, doesn't like to swim, genuinely terrified. And his good friend Buxton, wonderful swimmer, perfect swimmer. And the two men are found in the water, deceased, clasped around each other. So there are some suspicions and theories that this was a suicide pact because, you know, they're homosexuals in the 20th century. Uh, others say like one of them got into difficulty, the other tried to save him and they just didn't work. But clasped around each other though, like that's the bit that you you find in these papers and it's hard to know whether this is just them playing with it or not. But this is an area that's heavily, heavily warned. I mean, young men are stupid. They do stupid things all the time, right? Let's jump off of buildings, parkour, let's... Get an angel tattoo on my upper thigh. Woo, live life on the edge. But was this a case of just bravado? Or was this two men ending their life together because they weren't going to be able to have one? And considering the strange affections that Michael had been receiving from Barry, that may not have been a life that he wanted to return to. Because, like, everything is paid for by Barry. Everything, the money is coming from him. And it's difficult to have freedom when someone is holding your purse strings. So over the years, Barry is continuing with success after success. And back in 1911, he had changed the sort of the Peter Pan play into a book, a novel, Peter and Wendy. Now, in 1929, he hands over the copyright for all of the Peter Pan stuff to Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital. Like, so they can continue to earn money off of any of the Peter Pan stuff. Like, that's that's the point. Which, you know, fair enough. I can't fault him for that. Like, that's, that's something. By the time the 1930s roll around, Barry is known as this sort of prolific children's writer. And so he meets the princesses. Princess Elizabeth, who would go on to be Queen Elizabeth II, and Princess Margaret. And so he's regaling them with stories and tales. And Princess Margaret says, direct quote, that he is my greatest friend and I am his greatest friend. Like, because he's charming. What a surprise. What a surprise. He's also, again, five foot three. So he's not the most intimidating of, you know, individuals. So on the 19th of June... 1937, James Matthew Barry dies of pneumonia at a nursing home in Marleybone. And when he passes away, he basically leaves the majority of his works, the copyright, all that stuff, to Cynthia Asquith, right? It all goes to her, excluding any of the Peter Pan stuff, because that's already been given to the Ormond Street Hospital. Now, there were a few provisions in there for the Llewellyn Davies children are the surviving ones, and also anything for Mary Ansell, you know, for the rest of her life. On top of that, there was like 500 quid left for a church in Caithness, 
and, you know, bits here and there. Now, after, after Barry's death, a couple years after that, Peter Llewellyn Davies compiles this morgue, right? And so he has all of these family letters, he's got documents, papers, you know, and they're all peppered together with, you know, sort of information and opinions and all this stuff. Very much a primary source, you know, you're getting all this information. And yeah, yeah, he, he had a publishing house with, you know, financial backing from Barry and he published Daphne du Maurier's books and, you know, it was a whole thing. But Peter felt that his life was marred by the fact that he was the inspiration for Peter Pan. And he expected, like, more than just a legacy, he expected, like, more recompense because, you know, he felt the notoriety and everything else that came upon him for being the Peter of Peter Pan. Especially considering, like, Peter Pan is an absolute psychopath. Like this, have you read the original Peter Pan? Like, it's weird as fuck. Like, Peter Pan, I shit you not, he seduces mothers who are desperate for his youth in order to steal their children. And so he takes them to Neverland. And when they start getting older, when they start to grow up, Peter straight up kills them. Like, this is not a benevolent character, okay? No. Gingers don't have souls. I'm kidding. If you're ginger, I love you. Um, unless you're my ex, in which case, no. <laughs> I tolerate you. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all this stuff for Peter and he feels like this pressure on him all his life to be fucking Peter Pan. It's not, it's not a good thing to be labelled with. And so he's pissed off. And this affected him all through his life. To the point where it gets far too much for him to bear. And in 1960, he throws himself in front of a train. Like just the years of this building up. And he had said, and he'd said to like his family and his children and whatnot, that a lot of his issues stemmed from this whole Peter Pan situation. Luckily, Nicholas the youngest was so young that when the first like Peter Pan stuff came about, didn't really affect him. It was only when Peter and Wendy came out that things really started to take hold. Now, Nicholas ends up being like a consultant for Andrew Birkin's book. And he's the one who talks about how he's very sure that J.M. Barry wasn't a paedophile because there was no stirrings in his undercarriage. Like, because he was impotent. Like, that's his whole thing. And again, I'm not saying this whole thing was paedophilic in nature. I think it's a weird obsession with control and the connection to prolific writers. I mean, George de Maurier, like, he was outselling Dickens. Like, he was the fucking top. And... These were the kind of people that Barry wanted to consistently be associated with, connected with, and now he had the bloodline. And, like, Barry always seemed to be chasing this success, this magic that he wanted. And, like, honestly, it feels like the never in Neverland is Barry's own fucking happiness because he just can't reach it. But I don't know if he was, like, capable of it, to be honest. And seriously, all of those original versions of these stories that J.M. Barry created, they're so dark. And we seem to have painted over them with fucking pixie dust. But anyway, before I rant on for another, like, 25 minutes, so ends the story of J.M. Barry. There we go. There we go. Ah, uh, you, you liked my retelling of this information, feel free to rate and review five stars. If you haven't already voted for me in the Listener's Choice in the Irish Podcast Awards, that would be cool. Link in the description down below. Um, don't forget you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, uh, TikTok. 
I was going to say Twitter, but now it's called something else. I'm on all those places. Yay! Uh, you can follow me there. I generally respond to stuff unless you send me memes or reels by people. Because I, I don't look at stuff out of context. Like, I, I need a valid reason to do it. Like, there are like three people who send me memes and I will pay attention no matter what. Everybody else though, mm-mm, no, I'm not going to do it. But yeah, there's that and this and recommendation time, I guess. Whatever you do, no, no Peter Pan recommendations. I will, however, consider the film Hook, which is an underrated classic starring Robin Williams. So that's your watching, right? For reading, I'm going to suggest you read Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier because it's a fucking good book. And for listening, listen to me. Actually, no, listen to Murder Most Irish. If I may have already recommended them last week, I don't care. I'm doing it again. They're fucking awesome. Okay. And with that, I am going to bid you farewell. Good night, everybody. Adios. Au revoir. Au revoir, my friends. Bye-bye.